is about. Now, as we get started, uh, we're going to start off with a video, uh, a little message from someone who's been a part of Seacoast, and uh, just how God has used this community and many of you to affect and to make an impact on her life. And let's be reminded of this story. So go ahead and show this. Hey Seacoast, I'm Lisa Neal and I am so excited to be sharing my journey here at Seacoast with you. I would say that I was a homeless person when I got here and thinking about the word home really touches me deeply because home for me has such a deeper meaning than just a place where you go eat and sleep and go to bed, you know, talk to your family. Home for me, because of Seacoast, has such an incredible meaning. And so I've been here at home at Seacoast since 2009. And I'm so grateful that the Lord brought me here. I, I actually didn't get here on my own accord. I didn't even want to be here when I got to Seacoast. Um, I was uprooted uh, from where I was. I had a beautiful home, beautiful family, beautiful church, and my life seemed like it was just going wonderful. I had been married for 22 years and had a couple small children, one that was starting college. And within 24 hours, all of that was gone. Uh, my husband was gone, he took the children, the house was gone, uh, the house was being, um, I was being evicted from the home. All of these things were such a shock to me because all of these things were happening without me being present and knowing it. And I just found myself on the floor of an empty house in tears, just broken, wondering what happened. To go from having this full, wonderful life, although I knew something needed to be addressed because it turns out that my husband at that time was living a double life and I woke up to the reality that I was alone. I spent all of my energies and time just trying to find my family, trying to find a home again uh, to no avail. And my, my twin sister who was uh, living in San Diego at the time, the phone rang and I picked it up and as soon as I heard her voice I bursted into tears. And she said, Lisa, what's wrong with you? What? I just couldn't even talk. So she stopped everything, drove from San Diego about an hour and a half, two hours away to where I was, walked into that empty house and picked me up off that floor and said, you're coming with me. I was just so broken. I didn't want to go with her. I wanted to find my family. I wanted to have my own home. And, but I ended up here in San Diego living with my sister and my brother-in-law. And they, they brought me to Seacoast. I, I didn't want to get out of the car. Uh, I didn't want to be seen. I had, such a, I had such shame. I had this feeling of shame and this feeling of brokenness. I just, I just wanted to crawl in the corner and, and give up. I really felt hopeless. So I came into the church and I sat on the back row. I sat on the back row at Seacoast. And let me tell you, I was only raisin in the bowl of rice, if you know what that means. I mean, I'm like the only African-American there and it was just, and I just felt a little bit out of place because I was so different. And then my circumstances were so different. Everybody looked so well put together. And I just felt like, why am I here? 
So I sat on the back row and I kept my head down. I didn't want to make eye contact with anyone. Pastor Dale was a, the pastor here at that time and every now and then he'd say something that I'd actually hear, you know, through my tears. But there was one Sunday, I just was undone. I just kept my head buried. After the church was over, I found myself on that row just with my head in my hands in tears, trying not to, to, to cry out loud. I didn't even know church was over. I'm just sitting there with my head in my hands. And I feel somebody come next to me and sit down, but I don't want to look at them. I'm just, my head is in my hands. I'm buried and I'm just feeling hopeless. And then this person puts their arm around me. And when they put their arm around me, I, I still don't look up for uh, probably another minute. And I felt such a comfort with this person putting their arm around me. I looked over to my right, and it was a little girl, Emma Olson. And she was in the, just about to go to junior high. <laughs> she looked over at me, and I looked at her, and she smiled at me. She didn't say a word. She just smiled at me. And then she just kept her arm around me. That was the first time I had ever felt an embrace where I felt like God was in it. God was in that embrace. And then I found myself the next Sunday going, I hope I get to see Emma. And she would look for me and I would see Emma. That was a one, if I saw Emma, I was okay. It was through that relationship that God opened me up to other people to begin to share a little bit about who I was. And I look at my testimony, I look at my story now as not really a story about me, but a story about who God is and how God carries us through that, that storm. And I think about what Paul said, you know, Trials and tribulations, you know, produces character and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because of the love of God that he has poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given us. And that can, that's one thing I can say about me and what God has done. He has given me such a love, such a big love for the people here, for each and every one of you. He's given me a huge heart to want to go across the waters to other nations and to touch those who need his touch. I'm just so excited to be a part of what God is doing and to be a part of this fellowship at Seacoast. What a joy, what an honor to be able to experience this and, and to share it with you. Should we just close in prayer? <laughs> wow, it doesn't matter how many times you hear the story, if you know her story, and just to be reminded of how amazing God is and how he can work and move in, in, in big and small ways. And the picture of a multi-generational church and the power of each person. We don't know what our actions might do for someone or where they're at. And so I love, what a great story to start with. 
as we think back to the way God is moving. You know, one of the things we say here is that we exist, our high-level reason for existing is to help people discover life in Christ and learn to walk in his ways. That's why we exist. We want people to, to meet Jesus because we believe that this is the best life to live. We believe this is a life we're designed to have. And within that, we talk about a few things, and one of them is we say we want to be a home for those who are lost and wandering in their faith. And so sometimes it's maybe you are here, or maybe you have friends who've been here, or, or you're, you'd say, yeah, I'm kind of lost in the sense of I don't know what I believe. I'm just seeking. And we want to be a place where you come and feel at home. And that other piece is those who are wandering. You know, there's times when we're going to find yourself perhaps wandering like Lisa was. I just, she said, I just didn't know where to go. My life just fell apart. And so when we talk about we want to be a home for those wandering, that's what we mean. Where you can show up and you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to look put together. You don't have to somehow fit in with the way you think everyone else is perfect. And, and you show up and you feel like, wow, this is home. And it might be through the arm of a sixth grader. And it might be through anyone else in this room. It might be a smile. It might be whatever. And I've seen it time and time again. And so when we're thinking of that, one thing that I was asking and a question we want to answer today is how do we get, to, how do we make sure we're that type of place where stories like Lisa's are multiplied time and time again? And they are being multiplied. I will say that. But what is it that we need to do or what is it that we need to be is probably the better question to get there. And even having two months off to ponder, what are things as a church that we do? What can we do better? All these questions. And if I think about what kind of church does God want us to be, we can look at all kinds of programs. We can say, should we change the worship? Should we change the, the way we do the teaching? Should we change the stage? Is there things that we need to change? And sometimes, yeah, there's tweaks we can always make, right? But I don't think any of those are the answer. The answer is when we are a group of people who are being transformed by Jesus and he is living his life through us, that that's what actually is going to be transforming. So how do we get there? I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to go there. And if you're new to scripture today and, and looking at this, uh, Matthew is in the first book of what we call the New Testament, about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through your Bible, and the book of Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to be, and this uh, passage is at the end of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's this famous, you could call it a sermon by Jesus. It's, a, it's capturing all of his teachings in, in one spot. And it's really about what does it look like to be a disciple or apprentice of Jesus? What does it really look like to be people who've been with Jesus who are being transformed by them, him? And towards the end of Matthew 7 is where I want to go today. Now, I need to give you a little preface before I read it. Because we've been looking at the life of Jesus um, in the book of John, and we've been talking about the discipleship he's calling us to, uh, I'm going to read, as I read this, you might think, well, this is kind of a strong passage to start with. And, and I wanted to tell you, it's not, oh, Ryan's been gone two months, and he's coming with his spiritual pastoral stick, and he's just going to rage it on us today. And, and, and so I wanted to say, this isn't because I had any person in mind. So if you say, like, this sermon was right for me, well, that's the Spirit speaking to you, not because you were in my mind. This is because this is a passage that I was reading and, and reflecting on towards the end of sabbatical, and there's some things in it that kind of bothered me, 
and that I wanted to work through. And, and, and it's a process that I think God was bringing me into and said, why don't you share your journey with the church? So on the surface, you're going to hear this passage and go, where's he going with this? And, I'll, uh, and we'll unpack it together. So Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 15. And he starts off and he says this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes, nor are figs from thistles, are they? If you don't know anything about gardening, the answer is no. (laughs) So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, meaning the end kind of judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not cast out demons? And in your name did we not perform many miracles? And I will declare unto them, I never knew you, so leave me, you, pra- you who practice lawlessness. That, that's a pretty packed state or little section, isn't it? After all of this language about discipleship and what it means to uh, kind of blessed are the poor and the meek and those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness and, and then all this speaking about prayer and then trusting God and that's what it looks like to be a disciple, then he says, hey, beware of false prophets and he just goes off on this good fruit and bad fruit and you'll know them by their fruit and here's some people who perform miracles and notice that in Jesus' name, And they did all these great things. They prophesied. That means they were proclaiming these truths of God in Jesus' name. And on that day of judgment, they'd say, Lord, look at all these cool things we did. And he said, I don't even know you. Is anyone else having a hard time figuring out how can you you do those things and not even know? No, Jesus. Now, this isn't in the sense that he doesn't recognize them. I mean, he knows every hair on our heads. But there wasn't this intimate relationship. He didn't know them. And that language of know is actually indicates that intimate, kind of almost like a marriage relationship of knowing. He says, we didn't have that. No matter all those cool things you did, we just didn't have that. And so I started thinking about that because naturally when you have time to think, and I, I, on my sabbatical I had a little bit of time on a road trip by myself, which some of you would say that's the definition of hell. Those of you extroverts, you're like, are you kidding me? Um, for others, you're like, oh my goodness, could I just do that too? There was no kids? Really? You just drove and stopped when you wanted and ate what you want? It's pretty nice, isn't it? Young parents are like, that sounds amazing. Um, but it gives you a lot of time to think and to ponder. And as I was thinking, I started pondering this verse, and, and, and the one thing that came up was, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person that the Lord looks at and says, hey, you know, yeah, you did some things, but I didn't know you. I never knew you. And I thought, Lord, I, I want to know you. And, and then I got thinking about, but look at, and he said, they'll know them by their fruit. But the, on the surface, their fruit looked pretty good, didn't it? 
I mean, they're prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're performing miracles. The demons were obeying them. I don't know if the demons obey me. Those are, that's a powerful person. And so I thought, but their fruit kind of looks good. What was missing? Because you'll be known by your fruit. Now, when you think about being known by your fruit, um, really what that is is there's the life, evidence of your life. But there's a few errors we can make, and I just want to throw them out there right now. One error is that we could say it's just a moment in time. You know, you're known by something you did, that that's you forever, right? And, and sometimes it's fruit that you can fake in this case. Or it, so, so, but known by your fruit is this lifelong or it's this consistent pattern. Um, on my trip, we did spend our last two weeks, we were in uh, England and, and then in Ireland. And I was actually doing some studying in Cambridge. Before you sound impressed, I was the, the dumbest guy in Cambridge, just so you know. And, and I was working on uh, some, doing some writing and some stuff. And, and so we were in Cambridge and we, had a, we rented a car. Um, and, you know, in England, they drive on the wrong side of the road. Um, and so they, they have trouble with that. Um, but, and you get in your little, <laughs> I got my little rental car, and of course it's the cheapest one, so it's European, it's as big as this little platform, and, uh, and the steering wheel was on the wrong side, and had to shift with the left hand, all of that. So I was like, I got this, I've done this before, I, I, and so I can handle it. And everything went well, and we had a good time, no problems. Um, and this was, when you rent a car, they said, oh, this car only has five miles on it which that's a bummer when you rent a car, right? You want the one that's like 50,000 mi- 50, miles on it and it's already dinged up. You go, they'll never notice. But this one was brand new, so everything was my problem. It went well. There was no problems when we turned it in. Except for this, a couple days ago, I get a notice from the rental car company that said you had a traffic violation in England. And I said, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. There was no traffic violation. Now, there were times I thought I might be because I, they don't post a speed limit. It changes based on the traffic, and they just have pictures of cameras. I'm like, what does that mean? Is that a radar detector? Is that a camera? What's going on? So I just made sure I was slower than somebody. That was just the strategy, right? And, and so, so I thought, oh, maybe I got nailed. I, I don't know. Didn't for that. And then there, there was, okay, one time I did go through a red light. Um, but no one was around and no one saw it, so it didn't, that didn't happen. So, um, <laughs> and, and that, it wasn't that, and it said, I was driving in a bus lane. And I'm like, I don't remember ever driving in a bus lane. I don't think that was me, and I'm thinking, how do I contest this and say, I don't know, it was on the wrong side of the road anyway, and all that, whatever I was gonna do. And then they said, and here's a photo of it. And I thought, don't, don't show it yet, but I do have a photo they showed me. But I was like, okay, I'm in my like white Toyota, and they say I'm in a bus lane. How can they actually prove it? So then I clicked on the photo, and this is what I saw. <laughs> um, I don't know how they're proving that I was in a bus lane, <laughs> but... To say that you are known by your fruit, it's the evidence that others can see. So um, I, you can't call, I tried clicking in to see if it was actually me driving, um, but they did have another photo that was my license plate. So um, I'm thinking the neighbors took it out that night. But anyway, so the idea of being known by your fruit, sometimes it, people will see evidence of the life of who you are. Now here's a problem. As a Christian, if we say that this moment in time defines me, and I drive around the rest of my life saying, I'm a bus lane driving felon. <laughs> That's not what it means by your fruit. 
And so I want you to know, like if when you hear this and you think, maybe I'm the one Jesus doesn't know because sometimes the fruit is my kids frustrate me and I lose my cool. Or, or maybe I'm not as, as loving as I should be or maybe sometimes I'm selfish or maybe I've made mistakes in my life or I struggle with different sins and so my fruit is like this image of you in the bus lane and you're thinking, this is who God thinks I am. And let's not make that mistake. There's something deeper going on. Now, on the other hand, as I said, there's also the mistake of thinking, look at that great thing I did. Look, I tithed money to the church, so I must have fruit of a Christian. That's, then I obviously am, or I'm not that bad of a person, or I'm really kind to my wife, so I'm, I'm, I showed up on a Sunday morning, so the fruit of my life, like there's no way on the people Jesus is talking about. So who is he talking about? Let's look at this again and unpack it. First thing is this. Notice verse 15. This is what we have to know. He's probably not speaking directly to you because verse 15 says this, beware of the false prophets. So this whole passage is about false prophets. Now, false prophets existed in the Old Testament. They existed in the New Testament. In fact, even a non-biblical writer, a historian named Josephus, talks about in the first century in Judaism, they had all these false prophets, people who would say stuff. They'd say, no, you're, you're in the name of the Lord. And they say, you're not actually speaking in the name of the Lord. Throughout scripture, we're given a couple indications of what, who false prophets are. And for those of you who like to dig deeper, I'm only gonna give you the references without unpacking all of it. But 2 Peter chapter two in the New Testament, he talks all about what false prophets do. A couple things, they'd say because of greed, they'll exploit you with false words. So it might be people who in the name of Jesus are going to kind of exploit and manipulate people and it's with false words. So maybe they give you a false sense of hope or maybe they're doing something for their own glory and good. Um, later on in 2 Peter chapter 2, says that they speak out arrogant words of no value. They're enticed by fleshly desires, promising freedom well, actually being slaves of corruption. What, he's, what he was say, talking about is so false prophets who are gonna twist scripture and tell you, oh, all these commands of God, you don't have to trust those. You don't have to follow those. Those don't fit anymore. You can live this way. It's okay. And what they were actually is in just making sin so acceptable and making moral corruption like, no, it's okay. So they're changing the words of God in promising freedom, but they are actually slaves of corruption. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, it speaks about false prophets in chapter 13. And I want you to hear this. This is amazing. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, uh, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and he'll get this, and the sign or the wonder comes true, what? If it comes true, of which he spoke, but he was saying, let's follow other gods whom you've not known and let's serve them, then you shall not listen to their words. Isn't that interesting? A false prophet might even give signs in the Old Testament that come true. But what is the thing we need to watch out for? But if that person is getting you to serve and follow other gods, you are to ignore them. And that can be really subtle. I think in most Cases, you don't have a lot of people literally saying, well, we're not following Jesus anymore in a church. We're going to follow this other God. But maybe they make Jesus one of many gods. 
Maybe it's someone who's saying, well, Jesus isn't the Alpha and the Omega. He's not the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Maybe Jesus is just one of many paths. If you're hearing that, I want to tell you that's probably false truth. Not, not probably, that is false truth. They're causing you to serve other gods by diminishing Jesus. Now, maybe it's, it's also that they don't diminish Jesus, but they add stuff to Jesus. If you just follow him and serve him and he's your Lord, but also vote the right way, then you got it right. Or if you just do these certain behaviors the way I want you to add, then you're a real Christian. If they start adding to what it means to who Jesus is, they start adding to his teaching and worldview that they're causing you to serve other gods. So these are the false prophets that he's speaking about. Now look at the end of this Matthew chapter 7. When he says, depart from me, in verse 23, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Now I wanted to double click on that. What did that mean? What were they doing practicing lawlessness? And this literally is, in Greek, you have the word for, for uh, law, which would be namon or namos, and then in this case, it's anamion, which is, is, so you add the a, which means without the law. So those of you who pr- practice without the law, or not the law, I thought, wait, okay, so the false prophets, Jesus said, the one indicator isn't the fruit that looks really cool, it's that they were not following this law. Now, what law? And to get that, back up, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, I have it on the screen for you. Jesus says this, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law in the prophets. This is the whole Old Testament, he would say, the Hebrew scriptures. Again, in Mark chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, someone said, Jesus, what is the commandment? What's the law we need to know? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength, and love others as yourself. So here's what we're getting at. These false prophets might have been showing all this amazing fruit, They might have been showing all these cool things that they could do, but what was lacking was a heart that selflessly loved God and loved others. And here's why I started pondering this. Because when you work in church leadership, especially after the last three years when there's a lot of turmoil, there's this pressure that I have no, I always feel like I can take it, I'll keep taking it, and I, you know, God's given me some unique ability to take some of it, but when you get on sabbatical, it starts to release a little bit of that pressure, and you realize, oh, I think there was something there that I wasn't, didn't know I was holding, and there's this pressure to make sure that you guys like this church, because if you don't, you're going to leave. If we don't do things well, then what if we're not, what if the church down the street is, they're growing and we're not, so maybe we're not being faithful. Now, you might say, Ryan, don't say that. Well, that's what we say. It's natural. And there's this wrestling with, Lord, am I being faithful enough? Because if I'm not, why, why are other churches thriving? Are we thriving? Should we be doing something different? And you can get in this comparison game, this pressure. And the Lord just kept saying, and saying, hey, you know, sometimes what you think is success isn't. That's the word he kept telling me. Now, I am not saying churches who are growing are led by false prophets. Please don't think that. 
I do think that there are amazing churches in our community that are thriving. They're just like growing. There's people everywhere. Just they don't have enough room, and, and there's godly people leading them, and God's blessing them in that way. That's great. But the Lord is saying, don't think that that is the fruit of success. In fact, fruit of success might be to be faithful to the same group of people for 35 years, walking with Jesus. And so there's this pressure being taken off, but then I said, okay, but then what is the fruit that you're talking about? If it isn't the glamour stats, if it isn't how many people show up, and, and don't get me wrong, I would love to see us growing. I'd love to see you introduce your friends to Jesus and your friends who meet Jesus to grow and connect here and find community. That's what I want for you. I want that for you because there's something joyful about seeing people you know meet Jesus and learn to walk in his ways. And so if that happens, we will grow. And that's a great thing. But that's not the fruit that God's measuring us by. We don't want to be people practicing lawlessness. In other words, we, don't, we want to be people who are selflessly loving God and others. That's the law. But how do we do that? Because that can only be done by truly knowing Jesus. Not knowing about Jesus. Knowing about him is great. This is great. But we need to know him. It's more than it's in your head. It has to go deeper. And Jesus gives us a hint to how to do that in John chapter 15. I want to show you John chapter 15, verse 5. It's on the screen. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A false prophet apart from God, apart from Jesus, apart from that loving union with him, they might perform miracles. That's hard for me to believe. They might cast out demons. That's hard for me to believe. They might speak truth boldly and convince you of, of something. That just, I just, that's hard for me to believe. But the, scripture says they can do that. But the fruit that matters cannot be produced without being in loving union with Jesus. And the fruit that matters comes from you and from me when we're in loving union with Jesus, when we're abiding with him. And it might not be glamorous. It might just be selflessly giving of yourself to others. And someone, no one might ever know. You might be the sixth grader with your arm around somebody producing much fruit and you never knew it. Peter Scassaro, one of his books, writes this. Uh, Bearing fruit requires slowing down enough to give Jesus direct access to every aspect of our lives. Loving union is an act of surrender. So if we want to be a church that's a home for the lost and wandering, we want to be filled with people who are bearing fruit that matters, we need to slow down and walk in loving surrender with Christ. And I will say, having two months off of the Sunday rhythm helps. (laughs) It was helpful to not think, I have a sermon coming up this Sunday. It was helpful to have time to slow down and say, what does it even look like in my life to slow down? I am an achiever. I like to get things done. I like to move at it. I I am a ready, aim, fire guy. That's just who I am. Let's move fast. Let's fix it later. Let's go. But to learn to stop and start the day, one of the challenges I had from sabbaticals, what if you changed the pace to make sure you're abiding with me first? and then get at it. And so that everything you do, you're doing from a place 
where you are focused on, am I in union with Christ today? So here's some questions for you. First one is this. What would it look like for you to give Jesus full access in your life? What would that look like? What are the areas of your life where you haven't quite given him full access? You've given him access, but not full. Or maybe you say, you can have this area, this area, this area. Oh, my marriage? Nope. My parenting? Nope. My finances? Ah, no, not that one. Okay, some of them. What if you said, Jesus, I give you everything? What if it's that sin that you say, I'm a pretty good person, Lord. I just have this. Just let me have this. He says, no, I want full access. Allow him to abide with you, that loving union. Jonathan Edwards wrote this when he's talking about abiding in Christ. After a long study about it, he came to this conclusion. He said, loving union with God leads to self-giving love for God and others. This is the one thing the devil cannot counterfeit. I love that. Walking in loving union with God that leads to selfless living cannot be counterfeited by the false prophets. They can't fake that. You can't make yourself into some selfless person when it's all about you. And so this loving union with God, the fruit that it produces is something that the devil cannot counterfeit. And it's selflessness. A church that's filled with people who because of Jesus in us, we're able to truly love give of ourselves to allow God full access. As the band starts making their way back up, the last question for you is this. So the first one is, what would it look like for you to give Jesus full access? The second question is, what would your rela- how would your relationships change if they were marked by selfless love? How would your relationship with God change if it was marked by selfless love for God? Not by your ability to get up at 5 a.m. and read through the book of Romans every day. Not from your ability to uh, witness to everyone you see. But what if it was marked by selflessly loving God? What would your marriage look like if it was marked by selfless love? How about your parenting? How would you be in the workplace as a boss if your life was marked by selfless love? So a question we can ask, and this is one I was challenged to ask, is how do I add value in each interaction I have? What would this look like if I enter this conversation with a selfless point of view? What would change for you? Now, as we end, there's a, challenge, there's a temptation to look around and to judge the fruit of each other. To say, well, ah, my fruit's okay, but at least it's better than the fruit around here. <laughs> Jesus actually, before he gets to this, warns us and says, hey, don't get in the business of judging each other's fruit and the fruit they're producing because you just don't get it. You're not in a place to judge, and if you want to do that, take the speck out of your own eye. Just read Matthew 5 through 7. He says, don't judge other people's fruit. One of the places we spent two nights um, at the end of some studying was in Scotland, and the national food of Scotland is this thing called haggis. Any of you familiar? Are any of you Scottish in here? <laughs> so haggis is, if you look it up, it's described really nicely. It's just like a sheep parts. Um, but it's actually sheep lungs, kidney, and heart ground together mixed with oatmeal and spices, and wrapped in the stomach. (laughs) 
That's their national dish. We were told by someone there, it's like, don't let anyone tell you it's gross. You got to try it. And I was like, mm. <laughs> He said, don't judge our fruit, pal. <laughs> we like this stuff here. Which, by the way, I, I ate it. It's better than I thought it would be once you turn your mind off for a second. <laughs> but it's so easy to say, hey, your fruit, I, mine's better than yours. Jesus says, get out of that business. That's not selfless. That's not loving. How are you abiding with me? And let that be the thing that marks your life as an apprentice of Jesus. As a church, Acts 4, verse 13 is what I'd love to be said about us. Not our worship, not our music, not our teaching, not our facilities. It's this. It said, when they people saw Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, amen, that's me, the people were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. What if everyone who thought about Seacoast said, you know what? They're just normal people, but I think they've been with Jesus. Let that be who we are for the next 35 years, who are transformed and changed because we've been with Jesus. Because all this other stuff, the fads are going to come and go, and the worship we're doing today, and 20 years from now, you're going to say, that was bad. (laughs) It's going to change. But being with Jesus never gets old, and that is the fruit that we want to produce. So I want to invite you. Would you stand with me? And I want to pray for you, and we're going to sing one last song here. And this last song is just going to remind us and take our hearts to the good news is this, that this isn't something you have to conjure up and produce in yourself. This isn't something you have to dig deeper and say, I'm just going to make fruit pop out. No, this will come when you abide in Christ. It's built on Jesus and who he is and what he wants to do through you. So we're going to end our time just turning our hearts, being reminded that it's the life of Christ in us, what he's given to us that produces the fruit that matters. Amen? So let me pray for you, and then let's remind it and rehearse ourselves of this truth about Jesus as we end our time. God, we thank you so much that when you examine our lives, that, Lord, the one thing that you want is for us to be known by you and to know you. Lord, you invite us into this life of abiding in you, A life where we pause and we stop and say, I just want your life to be a part of me. And we give you access and you work on us and change us. And some days it looks great and some days it might be like being caught on camera doing something wrong. But Lord, it's you abiding in us that matters. So would you just release us of all of our guilt and shame of not measuring up? And Lord, the areas of our lives where we've been holding back from you, help us to just slowly, slowly give that over and trust you more and more. And Lord, remind us that the fruit that matters is the fruit of the selfless love that only comes through a life with you. So we thank you. We give you this time now as we rehearse this truth about you. Would you speak life into us, God? We thank you and give you this time.